good morning. Our text today is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through chapter 2, verse 1. We're being a little rebellious today, getting a little crazy. And that'll make sense as we uh, go on from here. But as I uh, begin, let's start with prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your grace through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the preaching of the word and the divine worship service of the Lord and ask you once again to be here with us that as your word goes forth, our lives would be changed, that we would hear nothing but you, Lord. And so we pray for your presence and your help, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Imposter syndrome, have you ever heard of it? Imposter syndrome, yes? The American Psychological Association says this, that it was first described by psychologists Dr. Susan Imes and Dr. Pauline Rose in the 1970s. The imposter phenomenon occurs among high achievers who are unable to internalize and accept their success. They often attribute their accomplishments to luck rather than to ability and fear that others will eventually unmask them as a fraud. Have you ever felt that way? Many of you probably have. You see, imposter syndrome is when you feel like you don't belong in whatever space uh, that you find yourself in. I remember when I first got to RTS, I thought, man, these people have no idea who they let in this place. What are they doing? Imposter syndrome is the feeling uh, that we don't belong, although basically everyone else around us disagrees, and Everyone else thinks we do belong. It's the fear of being found out as a fraud. But I will say, real frauds, because there are people that are real frauds, uh, don't have imposter syndrome. They don't struggle in that way. There is a form of imposter syndrome in the church, I'd say. How many Christian, uh, many church members have have such a low view of themselves that they try to fly under the radar because they don't want people to find them out. Really is a very sad sad thing when someone who has turned to Jesus constantly struggles to feel like they belong, constantly struggles with assurance. And lack of assurance of your salvation will lead to a lack of assurance that you belong in the church and that these are truly your brothers and sisters. And so it is vital that we believe what God has said and stop believing the lies of the accuser of the brethren, Satan, who keeps us from resting in the promise, the promises of God and experiencing the joy and comfort that comes from being a part of the community of the saints. So as we will see, the goal of our passage today, brothers and sisters, is deep abiding assurance. And so what we will find is that the knowledge of our union with Christ makes the soul fly to the depths and heights of the love of Christ. The knowledge of union with Christ makes the soul fly to the depths and the heights of the love of Christ. Our outline looks like this. We will see the prayer, its content, and then its power. The prayer, its content, and then its power. So let's first consider verses 15 and 16 and draw our attention to there. In this short letter, Paul writes 
to this church, to the church at Ephesus, in order to exhort them to unity, to pure worship, to godly living, grounded in the eternal plan and election of God, which is in part historically revealed in the mystery of Gentile inclusion. And in our text, Paul begins a prayer for the Ephesian church. Uh, Or at least he recites what he has been praying uh, for in regard to them. But then he goes off on a Pauline tangent. He likes to do that sometimes. And he doesn't get back to the prayer until 3.14. So he begins a prayer here. Talking about the prayer kind of leads him off to all these other subjects. And then he gets back to it in 3.14. Now in our text, Paul begins by saying this. He says, for this reason. Or you could say, because of this. And so we must begin by asking, because of what? Because of what? Or for what reason? In the first half of this chapter, Paul lays out with incredible clarity and beauty the plan of God in Christ. That is, God has predestined each of us for salvation in Christ. And God in Christ, by the Spirit, has lavished on those whom he has chosen all the riches of his marvelous grace. What marvelous assurance is that? You see, your salvation isn't rooted in your choice. It is rooted in God's choice. And God cannot lie. So if we have any affection for Jesus whatsoever, we can be sure these verses apply to us. Here is the clear idea then. Paul says, Because I have heard of your faith working out through your love for one another, I know you have been chosen in Christ before the world began. And that's why I never cease to give thanks to God for you. In other words, Paul is confident that they belong to God. He is confident they belong to God. Paul says elsewhere in 2 Timothy 2.10, he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. God knows who his sheep are. We don't. However, we can have great confidence. But we don't know perfectly. And so Paul has great confidence. But the work isn't done. Following Christ is lifelong. And some fall out of that race completely, as all of us probably have seen at some point. And so we strive to see all those in the church to persevere to the end. And that was Paul's purpose in life. And because of this, he prays for them. And a part of that prayer is is thanks to God for saving them and, and conforming them to Christ's image, of course. For Paul has heard of their love for God's people, the saints. Also note, he does not cease doing this, he says. Now, it should be obvious that Paul uh, isn't claiming to be in prayer for the Ephesian church 24-7, or he uh, wouldn't be able to write the letter. Uh, Rather, the apostle has them on his mind and prays for them over and over and over again diligently. He truly loves them, and so he mentions them in his prayers, and this is the work of ministry. You probably have heard it said, our thoughts and prayers go out to you. This phrase is often used in the media and maybe a corporate setting. Our thoughts and prayers go out to you. If you don't know someone very well, this is often something someone will say. Often the people using this phrase, not every time, but often they are not believers themselves, it in many ways has lost any meaning at all. I think most of the time when, when I hear it, the proper interpretation is, is something like, I don't pray, but if I did, that may be something I would do for you. 
brethren, let's show one another and the world that when we say we are praying, we actually are. You know, people can tell the difference when someone comes up to you and tells you they're praying for you. You often can tell the difference if they're being for real or not. And so let's mean it. Let's mean it when we say it and pray for one another. For Paul is giving us an example here. We love, do we love the brethren? Do we love our brothers and sisters? Are we bearing their burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ in prayer? May we be a people devoted to praying for the saints, following his example. And notice the Ephesian church was not like, uh, for example, the Corinthian church. Uh, they weren't perfect, however. No church is, of course, but they were doing well. And yet, Paul is still praying for continued growth, as we will see. So often in the church, we disciple and love new believers, which is good. But we do that often for about a year, and then we act as if they got it from there. Sometimes they act as if they got it from there. And none of us ever got it from here. None of us ever have it from here. We always need the church. We always need one another. We always need to be discipled and to disciple others. And this is not just the job of elders or pastors. What does Paul say later in the letter? 4.11. Listen to this. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. What's the job of the shepherds and the teachers and the evangelists? To help you in ministry. To equip you for ministry. You're in ministry. Alert. You're in ministry. We are in ministry to equip you for ministry. That's what Paul says. The church is in the ministry of discipleship. And every single one of us is, in, is a vital part of that. We need to be disciples who make disciples and who disciple others. And not everything needs to be a, an event or a program. The majority of our love should be shown organically. Older women, take younger women out to lunch. Ask them about their marriage and their kids. Pray for them. Check in on them. Older men, do the same with younger men. It's not a huge commitment, and yet it goes a very, very long way, especially in our culture today, where people are struggling very deeply with loneliness all over the place. And a vital part of discipleship is praying for one another. And so when we see, uh, when Paul says, he never ceases to give thanks for them, remembering them in his prayers, he wants us to follow his example, because they are the ones he is seeking to equip for the work of ministry. And ministry without prayer is not Ministry And my friends, all of you, again, are in ministry. And so since a major part of the work of ministry is prayer, we must pray for one another and never give up. And this will aid in the assurance of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But now, what is the content of this prayer? What is the content of this prayer? It is here in verses 17 through 19a uh, that we learn the marvelous hope that we have been called to. So let's draw our attentions there starting in verse 17. How does Paul pray for the church? Let's listen to this once again. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, 
and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, these verses are very jam-packed with deep theological language, as you see. So it's easy to get lost, but I assure you, it's actually the crux of the, of the prayer is actually uh, pretty simple. The prayer is for a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That's the prayer. Everything else after that is explanation of what that means. Which means that we're not left guessing what this spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him is. This kind of meaty phrase. Now the NASB, which is in your bulletin, doesn't make it clear that 18 following is Paul's explanation of the prayer, but I assure you it is. Verse 17 could end with a comma. I think should end with a comma. And verse 18 could begin with enlightening the eyes of your heart. And so it could read like this, which may make the point uh, clearer, uh, that I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ will give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the knowledge of him, comma, enlightening the eyes of your heart, that you know what is the hope of your calling. Paul makes clear then what is the spirit of wisdom and knowledge is. It is to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. But then that leads us to another question. What does that do? What does that do? What is that? You see, when you have the eyes of your heart enlightened, you know deeply what is the hope of his calling. But wait. Then we ask another question. What is the hope of his calling? How do we know what that is? He tells us, as he goes on, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and his surpassing power towards us? So how can we boil that down? Well, Paul is praying that God would give them a knowledge of the marvelous, beautiful life we will live in eternity. And he wants them to know what awaits them deep in the core of their beings. This, he doesn't want them to have a, yeah, 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 I know that sort of knowledge. Yeah, 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 I've heard that before. Yeah. I've been in Bible studies. It's always frustrating to me. You know, we'll read something like John 1, some amazing text or something. And then a guy will be, it wasn't in this church for the record. But <laughs> and I've, I've seen this multiple times. And a guy will be like, yeah, 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 yeah we've read this before. Do you know what you just read? <laughs> do you really believe what you just read? I don't think you do. You'd be a little more excited. Um, and so Paul is, is wanting them to have a, I will never be the same sort of knowledge. Not a, yeah, 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 I already know that sort of knowledge. A sort of knowledge that leads to a life consumed with the love of God in Christ. Through knowing this, brothers and sisters, the eyes of our hearts may be opened to not only the inheritance that awaits us, but also what is this gracious, what this gracious God is doing right now, sanctifying us by his grace as we await this inheritance. You see, this inheritance that is to come affects the present. Because as Paul says, right before our passage in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says this, We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, we have the down payment of that inheritance right now. Right now, which means being assured of that inheritance in the core of our being will change us in the here and now. And so Paul desires the church at Ephesus to know deeply the Spirit's work in applying the benefits of Christ to them. And the hope we have, which is the result 
of this saving work, eternal life. Now, sometimes we overlook the importance of knowing deeply the hope of the gospel and what the gospel is, the importance of praying and meditating on the deep truth of the gospel, that Christ died for us, that he has given us his spirit, that we await his return, and things like these. Sometimes we overlook how important it is to meditate and pray and consider these things. Imagine knowing for certain what the result of something is, how that can change your life. Imagine, and some of, this is true for some of you, but imagine that you have a family member who has cancer, and God gave you a vision of the future, which showed you that the person will be fully healed in a year. Can you imagine how calm and relaxed you would be, no matter how scary it got, as God himself told you how this thing would end up? You would have nothing to worry about. And so, Christian, has God not told you how this thing is going to end up? Has he not spoken clearly and said that all who come to me in Christ will receive an inheritance beyond their understanding? Has that not been said clearly to you? Be assured, then, Christian. Trust God's word. These are the very spoken words of God. As one old preacher used to say, and it's my old pastor. He doesn't like being called the old preacher, but he is the old preacher. He used to say that if you want to hear the audible voice of God, read your Bible out loud. <laughs> and he's right about that. It's the very word of God. The very words of God. So, brothers and sisters, lack of assurance of your salvation, of this inheritance that is to come, uh, that you will receive in the end, will keep you from experiencing the joy and peace and comfort of the Christian life. For assurance causes the soul to fly to the depths and heights of the love of Christ. So why are you downcast? We should ask ourselves. Christ is your Savior. Are your thoughts heavenward? Is your mind set on glory? Or is it stuck in the dirt? As one writer put it, we give into the tyranny of the urgent all the time. The tyranny of the urgent. What a wonderful phrase. But we shouldn't worry. There's plenty of time to think about earthly things, given that it's a basic necessity of life to think about earthly things. It is easy to think about things on earth. That's not the difficult thing. The difficult thing is to think about your heavenly, glorious future while you are on earth. That's what's difficult. Sure, the closer you are to death, I'm sure this gets easier, but why wait until you have cancer? Why wait until you have your first real health scare? Why wait until you are 82, if you make it that long? This is part of why Solomon admonished young folks when he said, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And so Christian, young, old, in between, set your mind on the hope that is to come, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And that's you, believers. And so we have seen that Paul is praying for the Ephesians, that he wants them to understand the hope that awaits them deeply in their core so they live with assurance, which changes the way we live. And now we will learn of the power behind the prayer. We learn now what it will be or how it will be made effectual for those who God has called to himself. So let's look at 19b, starting with these are in accordance. 19b through 
Notice how he begins. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. You see, this wonderful reality of our future inheritance and the opening of our eyes to the knowledge of that inheritance is brought about by the power of the living God. The strength of his might, so Paul says. How did God reveal his power in this regard? That's a question we must ask. We'll look at verse 20 and following. This power he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So how could we lack assurance after reading something like that? If we believe something like that, do you see what God has done for you in history? Open your eyes and believe that what God said he has done and he will do. We will be brought into his glorious kingdom. Jesus will return. We will live with him for eternity on a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Why? Because Christ was raised from the dead in history. He then ascended. And as we speak right now, he is seated at the right hand of the living God, ruling and reigning, using the world as a footstool for his feet until the time comes for him to return and make all things new. When Jesus ascended, having accomplished his atoning work, putting away sin for good, defeating death, he was given all things. Everything was put in subjection under him or to him. And this king is given as head over all things to the church. This is the head of the church. The king of the universe. It's an interesting way that he puts it, isn't it? Think about it. Paul doesn't just say Jesus is given as head of the church. He doesn't just say Jesus is head of the church. No, he says he's given as head over all things to the church. Interesting. You see, Jesus is head of the church, and the head of the church is head over all things. The world belongs to the head of the church. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is why all men everywhere must repent and turn to our King, Jesus, before it's too late. Jesus is King of the universe, whether anyone likes it or not. But the verse doesn't stop there. This mighty King who has all things under his feet also has a people. And we are that people. But this isn't like an earthly king and his subjects, is it? He certainly is our master and Lord, who we must submit to and obey. We are graciously called his body, for we have been united to him. So once again, Paul blows our minds. He keeps on blowing our minds over and over and over again. He adds, we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of him who fills all in all? Really? What? How remarkable is that truth? We are called the fullness of our Savior. How could we be called his fullness? How could we be associated with him in that way? 
to the extent of calling us his body, let alone his fullness. I mean, this is the one who fills all things. God, all in all, blessed forever, amen. This King Jesus is the God-man, the Son of God, creator of the universe, who entered into his own creation to redeem us. What marvelous grace. Do you see the marvelous grace of God here, brothers and sisters? But once again, Paul doesn't stop there. Sometimes chapter and verse divisions are helpful. Sometimes they're not. This may be a place where they're not so helpful. It may keep us from continuing after chapter 1 and seeing the little glorious nugget here, as I'll point out to you. Paul continues his thought. He begins with and. It's not the start of a new idea at all. And what does he say? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Whoa. So you see, not only has the Father chosen me in Christ before the world began, not only did he give us a Savior, the Son of God, who became flesh, not only did he rise from the dead and ascend into the heavens on our behalf, not only is he king of the universe right now, not only are we united to this Jesus and so called his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, but all of this he has done for us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Think about it. We are Jesus' fullness, his body, united to him. We are righteous because he is righteous. Our flesh is being put to death because he was put to death. We will rise again because he rose again. We will receive an inheritance because we are sons of the living God because of the work of the Son of God on our behalf. And yet, we were haters of God. Our father was the devil, as Jesus says in John 8. Lovers of sin, living our own way, completely spiritually dead, unable to do anything pleasing to God. And yet, we are the ones who have been given the world. We are the ones who will soon crush Satan under our feet, as Paul says in Romans 15. We are his fullness. How could this be? We were dead. So we're left saying, oh, what the wonderful grace of God. And I pray that all of us would be able, as Paul says later in the letter, to be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Make that your prayer, brothers and sisters, not just for yourself, but for your fellow saints. And so we have seen the Apostle Paul is praying that the church would have a deep abiding assurance that they have been united to Christ because of the great and marvelous love of the Father by the power of the Spirit. For the knowledge of union with Christ truly will make our souls fly to the depths and heights of the love of God. And having been united to him, may you never forget, may you never forget what you were without him. Never forget that although you were a dead sinner, incapable of doing anything pleasing to him, never forget that although you were rebelling against your creator, Christ died for you, the ungodly, while you were shaking your fist towards him in defiance. You were united to him in his death so that you can say, 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. While your God was your belly and your father was the devil, Christ rose again and you in him. And while you were doing everything you could to suppress the truth of the gospel, you were mystically joined to Christ in his ascension. So that now you can say, what shall I fear? I am reigning with Christ as we speak. And all of this was applied to you when the Spirit came and brought you to life. For you have been saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of the living God. For once you were dead, and now you have been united to the one whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, instead of feeling like an imposter, believe on the promises of God. And take hold of this blessed assurance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your marvelous grace that is unfathomable to us who believe. I pray that as we go forth, continue this worship service, and then leave from here, that we would be struck with such a deep abiding assurance and that our lives will continue to change as we are conformed to the image of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.